0: I'm Adam Brewer, lead pastor of Glory Fellowship Baptist Church in Jasper, Alabama. We want to thank you for joining us today. As you listen to this podcast, our hope is that you are challenged and encouraged by God's Word. We know that God's Word gives life, and our hope is that you experience God's abundant life as you listen to that. You know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that our Lord made a way. He's a way maker. Because I had no way to be back into a right relationship with my heavenly father, my creator. And Jesus was a way maker. I'm thankful that he's a miracle worker. You've heard testimony from Randy of what he's doing in his brother's life. We've seen miracles that God's doing. Some people say that miracles no longer exist. But folks, God is still working. And he is a miracle worker. And whether we see it or whether we feel it or whether we don't see it or don't feel it. I am glad to know that God is still working, and he's still doing some incredible things. He's doing incredible things in the life of this church, doing incredible things throughout our world. And it's wise and incumbent upon us to stop and to say thank you. Turn your Bibles in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. Verses 17 through 20, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, as we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we started off with the Beatitudes, calling it Christian character. Jesus gives us the character of people, of citizens of the kingdom. And then last week we looked at Christian witness, being salt and light and what that means. And the commission that God has given us to go out into our world and have an influence and an impact. And we can only do that through the Spirit and the Word uh, leading us and guiding us and causing us to be distinct from our world. Today we come to a passage of Scripture and we're going to look at Christian obedience. Christian obedience. Some have called this passage uh, Christian righteousness. Uh, basically looking at the text, I, I was almost led to call it uh, the Christian's authority. What is our authority for living? What is our guide? But we're going to look today at Christian obedience uh, from Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 17. And we will finish in verse 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. We've prayed this morning. I want us to pray again, focus specifically now on our heart and mind's readiness to receive the word of God and allow it to transform us. So if you would, bow your heads, please, and we'll give you just a moment to pray silently. Jonathan Whitlock, would you voice a prayer, please, sir, this morning? You can be seated. Thank you, Jonathan. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend, and on Memorial Day weekend, it's a time where our country kind of hits the pause button to remember and to say thank you to those who have given their lives in service so that you and I can have the freedoms that we have. And one of the freedoms that we have is exactly what we're doing this morning, the freedom to come and to worship the Lord and to be together. And I am thankful for that. And we ought to, as Christians living in America, we ought to stop and we ought to reflect and we ought to say thank you to those who have given their lives. We ought to say thank you to God for the country that we live in and ask his blessing on it and ask our obedience uh, to his will. But I think for the Christian, this is also a great opportunity for us to hit the pause button and to stop and to say thank you for something else. To remember those throughout church history, not American history, but church history, who have given their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. I think about specifically this morning with the passage that we've read. You know, Jesus here is confirming for us the authority of God's Word over our lives. He is confirming for us the inerrancy of God's Word, the truthfulness of God's Word. But friends, it didn't come to us at no cost. The Word of God, whether it be spoken or written, has come to us because so many throughout church history have gone to war to make sure that you and I have an opportunity to read God's Word. You don't have to go too far back in history, uh, church history, and you see that uh, what many of you know, what we know as the Reformation, a period of time where the Catholic Church was very large, and there were many who did not want the people to have the Word of God where they could read it on their own. They thought that the church, the leadership of the church was the only one who could have the word of God. And what they were doing in many cases, they were manipulating people. They were saying to them what they wanted God's word to say so that uh, they could uh, get money, so that they could have power, influence, fame. And the church was suffering for it. And we know that during that Reformation period of the 15 and 1600s, there were many who went to bat because they knew that the word of God was vital. That the word of God has life in it and it's transforming. And so they, they gave their lives. Many of them were persecuted and ridiculed because they wanted the word of God to be passed out and spread amongst the people. You go back to the early church, the book of Acts. And we think about how many people of that time wanted to shut the word of God up. Whether it be in written form or in verbal form, we know that Peter and Paul and John were persecuted on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ. You back up into the Old Testament and you see that this is something that has gone on basically since the beginning. We know that Jesus told the Pharisees and the scribes, he says, God was sending his word to you. He was sending his message to you over and over again, prophet after prophet after prophet who came not in their own name, who came not with their own word, but they came in the power and with the word of God. And what did you do to them? You killed them. Every single one of them. And yet they continue to preach and they continue to be faithful. And throughout church history, we see that people treasured the word of God. The word of God that we hold in our hands, that we read on the screens up here, and that we get to come together to hear preached and taught every single week. Friends, Jesus thought that this word, that God's word was very valuable. Jesus held it in high esteem. And that's what we see today. And so perhaps on this Memorial Day weekend, not only should we say thank you to those who have given us the opportunity to experience the freedoms that we have in this nation. But as Christians, maybe we should think about those throughout all of church history who have given their lives and their families and their freedoms to do what needed to be done so that you and I can do what we're doing here today you know there's been many lives that have been given on account of the word of God and yet we live in a day where the word of God is treated in many places and in many people's lives and even in churches it's treated with contempt we ignore it we abuse it we alter it we neglect it and we disobey it And Jesus says here, he's speaking to a people who evidently that was the case during that time too. Notice how Jesus starts off in verse 17 of Matthew 5. He doesn't go right into the, the, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He starts off, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, why did he say do not think if they were not thinking this? Obviously, there were people in Jesus' day who had heard Jesus teach and preach with great authority. They had seen some of the miracles that he had performed. And maybe they're now thinking, we're going to follow this guy. And this is something special about this guy. And so we're going to follow him and do what he says. And we're going to neglect the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to invalidate it. Don't think that I've come to empty it of its meaning and of its significance and of its power. I didn't come to do that. I have come to fulfill it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, here we have Jesus, who is the incarnate word. We read in John chapter 1 where uh, John gives us this beautiful opening, this introduction to his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And it talks about how all things were created through the Word. And finally, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is the incarnate Word of God. And here we have the incarnate Word telling us about the significance of the written Word. Now, when you and I communicate... There's a lot of ways that we can communicate. We communicate through nonverbal expressions. I have so missed having you here during this time of uh, social distancing. Because you know what a camera does not do? A camera does not give nonverbal cues. It just sits there whether you're preaching and making sense or whether you're making a fool of yourself. But faces can help me understand whether I need to clarify something or whether I just need to go in a totally different direction. We have nonverbal communication, but one of the primary ways that we communicate with each other is through our words. And we seek to articulate to another person what is going on in our mind and our heart. We want others to understand exactly what we're trying to express. And we do that through words. Well, likewise, God wants to express his heart to us. He wants to express who he is to us and how much he loves us and the cost that he has gone to and incurred in order for you and I to be in a right relationship with him. And how does he do it? One of the ways that he does it, he expresses it to us through words. In the Old Testament, it was the oral word where prophets received under the inspiration of God, a word from God, and they proclaimed that out to the people. Then we have the written word. What the prophet spoke was written down for our instruction. And now it is the incarnate word who has come and lived among us. And in Christ, particularly upon the cross and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, we see God most clearly and powerfully communicating to us about what he's done for you and me. If you look at the cross of Christ and you don't hear God from heaven screaming out with great intensity and passion, I love you, you're not listening. Because the word of God, the expression of God, is making known to you just how much he loves you and he loves me. And so here we have Jesus saying the written word, is just, has just as much authority as the living word, because it's all from the heart of God. I want you to take your Bibles with me, and we're we're not going to do a whole lot of flipping today, but I do want you to see uh, one passage, 2 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 19, 20, and 21. 2 Peter 1, Verses 19, 20, and 21. At some point, the Lord allows, we're going to do a short sermon series. It may be uh, this upcoming winter or at some point, we're going to do a short sermon series on the significance of the Word of God and how the Word of God has come to us and why it can be trusted and how we as Christians should understand the Bible and uh, view it and respect it and honor it. And so we can't do that today. We can't pack everything that I'd like to share with you into this one message. But I do want us to visit 2 Peter 1 because it does help for us if if we're going to say that Scripture has authority over us. Why is that the case? And so here we're reading Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus, who walked with him and then who preached after Jesus ascended into heaven. And best we can tell, Peter ended his life being crucified upside down on a cross, Uh, because of his testimony of Christ, because he was a man who preached the word of God. Peter has this to say, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 19. He says, and we have something more sure, or something that has been more confirmed, this prophetic word. Now, let's pause there. And ask, what is this prophetic word that he's talking about? Because when you and I think about prophecy, many immediately go to the idea of future telling. That somebody has come to tell us what's going to happen in the future. And that certainly is a part of the prophetic word. I am thankful that God has given to us his word that teaches us that Jesus is coming back again. That things are not going to always be the way that they are. That he is going to put an end to sin and death finally and fully and you and I are going to spend eternity with him. Jesus is the victor and I'm glad that I know that that is coming in the future. But the word prophecy does not just include future telling. It also includes preaching. Saying what God has said and what God has revealed in the past. So it's not just me prophesying about the future. It's me taking what God has revealed in the past. And expounding it and explaining it. So that we can live more faithfully in the present. So Peter is saying here. We have this prophetic word. It's been more fully confirmed. Now why has it been more fully confirmed? Well, they had the Old Testament prophets. They had the writings of the Old Testament. But what he is saying is that now in the person of Jesus, every promise made in the Old Testament has been fulfilled and realized in Jesus Christ. And so it's more fully confirmed than it was originally because everything that it prophesied, everything that it spoke of, Jesus has come and fulfilled and he accomplished it. And it's with 100% accuracy and fulfillment. So he says, We have this word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Do you see our response here? Peter is saying, The word is inerrant, the word has authority, and now our response to it should be what? Pay attention to it, pay serious attention. To the Word of God. Don't just approach it casually or half-heartedly. Don't just pick it up and look at it and read the words on the page once a week. This is something that demands our devotion and our attention. So we would do well to pay attention to it. It is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture. Now there again. Same word for prophecy. He is talking about the entirety at this point. He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. And we will soon see um, in other places in the New Testament where this also includes the New Testament writings that you and I have. But here he says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? In some ways, that's kind of a trick question. Because there's two answers. Two answers. One answer is, well, there are human authors or human writers that wrote Scripture. And if you said that, you would be correct. Because we know that we have Matthew. And we know that we have John Mark. And we know that we have Dr. Luke. And we know that we have John the Apostle. We know that we have the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. We know that we have Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel in the Old Testament that all make up the Scriptures. But behind it all was who? God. And that's what he's saying here. He said, the scripture that you're reading, it's not just a person's interpretation. We don't get to write scripture on our own. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it is the Spirit of God that is inspiring these men to write down what they see and what they hear from God. So who's the writer of the Bible? Who's the author of the Bible? It's God. It is God using human people in human situations in the course of history to accomplish his purpose. But because it's by the inspiration of the Spirit, it is unlike any other book that you and I will ever read. In fact, we shouldn't be reading it so much as it should be reading us. And finding its way deep down into our souls. And Jesus says back in Matthew. He said because this word is inspired. It's not going anywhere. You and I do not have the freedom. To simply say you know well I like that part of scripture. But I don't understand that. So I'm going to stick with this part of scripture. And I can neglect this or boy I really like this I'm obeying this part of scripture but I'm not obeying this part of scripture so I'm going to pay more attention to this or even for a preacher to stand up and say you know I really like this is an easy passage to preach so I'm going to preach this and I'm going to avoid the hard ones no 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 all of the bible is God's word and all of the Bible is profitable and all of the Bible is useful for training and for reproof and for correction and for encouragement and for rebuke every bit of it there's a popular song that's out there now and I really like the one who sings it I mean I listen to a lot of his music um then I read the red letters heard that song I understand what the artist is singing But you know I really in some ways disagree with the song because whether intentional or not it puts the red letters in our Bible the words of Jesus up against the black letters and words in our Bible as if the red letters have more authority than the black letters. Do you know who the black letters were talking about all along the one who spoke the red letters. And so it's not that one part is more important than the other. It's that the whole Bible is a unified whole that goes together. And without the New Testament, you and I do not understand what is meant in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. But without the Old Testament, we don't have the vocabulary that we need to fully appreciate and understand the New Testament. And so Jesus says, I have not come to invalidate the Scriptures I've come to fulfill them. If you've spent any time at Glory Fellowship, you know that I enjoy preaching those Old Testament passages. What I really enjoy and what I really feel called to do more than anything else is go back and forth between the Old and the New Testament. Because do you know what the New Testament writers quote more than anything else? The Old Testament. And so I like going back and forth, and you know that if you've been with us any time, when we come to an Old Testament passage, it is just as much the Word of God as what we read out of Matthew 5 this morning. And so when we come to the Old Testament, my hope and my goal and my aim is to clearly explain to you what's going on in that particular passage, in that moment in history, and what God is teaching His people. But inevitably, I always want us to get to Christ. Because the Old Testament is written about him. You remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, he makes a long walk with a couple of disciples. And they were on the road to Emmaus. And there they are on the road to Emmaus. And these two followers of Jesus, these two disciples, as the Bible teaches, they are on their way and they are really confused. Because they thought he was the Messiah. They thought that he was the one that the Old Testament had talked about. And they are struggling on the way home. They are struggling. Well, Jesus shows up in their midst and he hears the conversation and he allows them to go on a little bit in their conversation. But finally he interjects himself. And he says, what are you discussing? What are y'all talking about? And so they tell him what they're talking about. he's almost like, "How, how do you not know what we're talking about? Have you not seen that the biggest event in history has just occurred? They just hung a man that everybody was looking forward to, to be the Messiah. And Jesus begins to open the scriptures to them. And he opens their eyes to the scriptures. And it's the Old Testament scriptures that he's opening their eyes. So that they can fully understand. And it says beginning with the law and the prophets. He begins to explain to them why he had to be killed, buried, and then raised on the third day. Friends, the word of God is alive. Every single word of it. There are some very famous pastors and preachers. In our country today, one made the statement, said, that we as churches and Christians need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, if we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, we might as well unhitch ourselves from the entirety of the Bible because the New Testament is very much hitched to the Old. And it is useful and profitable for us. And so we see here that Jesus is saying, I have not come. To invalidate the Word of God. The incarnate Word confirms the importance of the written Word for us. Jesus says, uh, I tell you, I tell you that uh, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now what is Jesus saying here about the iota and the dot? What is the importance here and how do we understand it? In English, we have a saying that when we want to make sure something is done fully and something is done well, we say we need to cross all of our... Come on, it's okay. Cross all of our and dot all of our. That means we want to make sure that everything is in order. Well, in the Hebrew language, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, uh, the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it looks a whole lot like our apostrophe, okay? It's just a single little stroke. And that's the 10th letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. It is the smallest letter of the alphabet. And so Jesus is saying here, not only am I not invalidating a part of the Old Testament, every bit of the Old Testament, even down to the smallest letter of a word in the Old Testament, will stand and is inspired even until the earth passes away. And then he says, not a dot. What does that mean? Well, back to Hebrew language. In Hebrew... There are two. Th- th- there can be words that look very similar, okay? And the reason that I know this is because I've, I missed this on the test when I was taking Hebrew. There are words that can look very similar, almost identical. And for the untrained eye, you would think that those words are the same word. But for the trained Hebrew eye, they begin to look, when two words look similar... They can differentiate the two words based on a dot system that's used in the Hebrew language. And there are certain words that have a certain number of dots above them. The vowels have certain number of dots, contain certain number of dots. And you've got to be able to read those dots. Now, those dots are very small. And they almost seem like they're insignificant. But Jesus is saying, not even one of those dots will be unimportant. Not one of those dots is going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. What's Jesus saying to us here? He's saying, get in the word. Be people of the word. The word has authority over your life and it can be trusted. I keep using the word authority, the authority of scripture that Jesus is confirming here. What does authority mean? Well, let's investigate it. This comes from Wayne Grudem. Dr. Grudem has done a lot of work on theology. He writes this about Scripture. He says, The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words. All of the words in Scripture are God's words. Every single one of them. The red ones and the black ones. All of the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, we as Southern Baptists call ourselves people of the book, people of the Bible. And we want pastors and we want teachers who preach the Bible. Can I tell you that in many cases... That when we say that we want that, it's really hogwash? We say that we want that, but what we really want is somebody who's charismatic up in the pulpit and who can keep our attention and who can move our emotions. And when they come up with a sermon that they think we need to hear, they find a text to go with it so that we can quote unquote call it biblical preaching. You know what I call that? I call that a sermon in search of a text. A sermon in search of a text. And at that point, you and I stand over the Word of God and we make the Word of God say and do what we want it to do. We ought to be people who are up under the Word of God, who read it and who seek to understand it and who allow the Word to get deep down in us because you don't need to hear what I've got to tell you. You need to hear what God has to tell you. Because you don't obey Adam. You obey Christ. Adam's words do not have the ability to transform you from the inside out. But the word of God, it absolutely does. Do you believe that this morning? And yet, and yet, in the way that we approach the word of God, far too often it's way too casual. It's way too comfortable. When we approach the word on Sunday morning, We would have to admit that oftentimes our minds are in park or reverse instead of engaged and ready to pull and ready to learn and ready to encounter God. Friends, we cannot neglect the Word of God because to neglect the Word of God is to deny people the opportunity to experience the life that God offers. One of the ancient writers named Jerome says this, Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. How do we get to know Christ and encounter Him? It's through His Word. And the only right way, the only biblical way that you and I can get to know Him better, is through His Word. And as we read his word, we turn that into prayer. And when we meet together and we call ourselves a family, we are a family around the feast of his word and who he is. And we are learning from the orally uh, communicated word preached. We are learning from the written word. And we are learning from the incarnate word, who is Christ. And all of that is found here in God's word. What's your approach? What's your perspective on the word of God? Is it the same as Jesus that, man, this thing is authoritative? It's got authority over my life. It gets to dictate what I do and don't do. Or would you have to say, you know, I've cast off some things that I really don't like or really don't know about, and I don't really want to know them because I want to keep living the way that I live. Kingdom living, there's an expectation for Christian obedience. Then Jesus comes to verse 20, verse 20. I wish we had more time to unpack verse 19, which would kind of give you some insight into why I like to preach expositorily, which is through the text, verse by verse, because I want you to understand, I want to be one who is honored in heaven, not for my fame and not for my ego, but simply because I want to please my master. And that ought to be the desire of our church, And we are teaching others to obey what's here. Then you come to verse 20. Verse 20 we read where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus has been talking for three verses about the importance of Scripture and the authority that Scripture has over kingdom citizens. And then he concludes it and he says, Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now at first glance, it seems like these two things have nothing in common with one another. In reality, they have everything in common with one another. Because the Pharisees and the scribes were people of the law. They knew the law. They added to the law. They invented ways to keep people from breaking the law, or so they thought. I mean, they would have some of these crazy regulations on Sabbath, which is why Jesus irritated them so much when he would heal on the Sabbath and do things on the Sabbath. They would have these laws that you couldn't walk a certain distance on Sunday or that would be considered work. You couldn't help somebody on Sunday or that would be considered work. And so the Pharisees had added to the commandments of the Old Testament. It was a very legalistic, human-centered way of approaching the law. And Jesus says here, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes or else you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this passage, this verse has confused many people. But what does Jesus say here? Is it, does it mean that I've got to have more laws than the Pharisees had? That I've got to be more strict in my adherence to these legalistic rules than the Pharisees? Because just to be honest, I don't know that I can do that. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. It's almost as if you took an ACT. Taking the ACT. And Mr. Pharisee makes a 31 on his ACT. That's a really good score. Probably going to get him some scholarships. And Mr. Pharisee is proud of that ACT score. And all the other Pharisees are applauding Mr. Pharisee because of his strict adherence to that law. And he got the answers right on the ACT. And so many of us think, well, I've got to make a 32 because my righteousness has to exceed that of Mr. Pharisee. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You need to be taking a different test. The righteousness that I am demanding from you is an altogether different righteousness than the type that the Pharisees had. You remember Jesus often talked to the Pharisees. And to me, he was was pretty blunt with the Pharisees. There was a time he called them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. And what does that mean? It means that on the outside, Mr. Pharisee, understood the law, and was giving his life in adherence to the law. He was doing his best to not break the law. But a whitewashed tomb looks good on the outside, but inside it's full of what? Dead men's bones. And as we looked at last week, that means that it's rotten, and it stinks, and it's filthy, and it's dead. And so Jesus here is reminding us He said, I don't want you to be anything like the Pharisees. I don't want you to take the same test that the Pharisees are taking. I don't want you to try to exceed them by doing more and being a better adherence to some man-made laws like the Pharisees were. I want you to have a deeper righteousness. I want you to have an inside that's alive and has a desire to honor and to obey me. Because Mr. Pharisee, he was willing to kill Christ he was willing to persecute Christ. But he says, "My citizens, it's not about marking off a checklist, oh I went to church today, or oh, I read my Bible today. It's about the mind and the motives. You know what the problem with the Pharisees were? They had big theological brains with heart disease. Big theological brains with heart disease. They knew everything that there was to know or so they thought about the Old Testament scriptures. They knew everything that there was to know or so they thought about who God was. They had memorized so much of the Old Testament and the law specifically. And yet Jesus shows us that they had spiritual heart disease and they were in danger of spending eternity apart from their life-giving creator. You know what I fear? I fear that in many churches today we've got some of the same issues going on. We've got people that have big theological brains that know a lot of theology, that know a lot of Bible, that know a lot of church history but there is no heart for the Lord, no heart for the love of other people and no desire to see people come to know Christ. And Jesus is saying here in verse 20 of Matthew 5, your righteousness got to go deeper. The Pharisee righteousness is surface only. He says, I want something within you that only I can give you. If you go back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll see that there was a prophecy made, a promise made. I'm going to put my law within you. I'm going to put it within you. And how am I going to put it within you? I'm going to put my spirit within you. And when Jesus puts his spirit into a man or into a woman, they have a desire to honor him, not because there's man-made regulations, but because they want to honor their master so our righteousness must be of an altogether different kind than the pharisees it must be deep and originate within the recesses of our mind and heart mac brunson says this and i'm gonna give an illustration and we'll stop i'm not out of sermon i'm just out of time mac brunson who pastors over in birmingham and man i so appreciate his preaching ministry Here's what he writes. We can counterfeit the things that we say. We can counterfeit the things that we say. And we can counterfeit the things that we do. But we cannot counterfeit the things that we want. The desires of our heart are a strong indicator of our salvation. The desires of our heart are a strong indicator of our salvation. So we can get together and we can fake and fool one another by what we say. We can even, to an extent, fake and fool one another by what we do. We cannot counterfeit what the heart truly desires. And if the Spirit and the Word are not married and growing in our lives, our desires will not be the desires of Christ. It will not be to go and make disciples of all nations. It will not be to heal the hurting and to encourage the discouraged and to mend the afflicted. It will be very much selfish in nature. We close with this illustration about the word of God. I've been told I can't walk. And it's killing me, just so you know. You and I are blessed to live in a time where we have great technology. We have the ability to go to our doctor. And for them, without using a single instrument to cut us open, they can scan our brains and our hearts. They can look at our arteries. They can do a myriad of tests and get a whole lot of information that they need. Can you imagine spending money and having a doctor? And you go to this doctor, and they begin to scan you, and they do all of these tests week after week, and you constantly feel like all you're doing is driving back and forth to the hospital. And they get all these tests done, and all these doctors come together, and they begin to write down as they've been uh, they're taking notes from each other and from your your scans, and they say to you, "You know, this was really informative." We want to thank you for your time and for the money that you or your insurance company has paid. We want you to go home and die well. You'd be like, what in the world? You're supposed to take the information that you have learned from all of these scans and come up with something from that information that's used to heal whatever's going on in my mind, my heart, or my body. You wouldn't expect there to be information that became transformation and healing in your life. You would totally disrespect a doctor that just used your information as that. Just a set of facts to make them feel better about what they know. Friends, the word of God's the same way. You and I can have been in church for decades. And we can have read our Bibles from front cover to back cover. And I do encourage you to do that. We can sit and we can hear sermons. We can have Bible classes and all of that's needed. But if all we're taking away from it is more information to make us feel like we are spiritually smarter and spiritually in a better place. And the word has never found its way deep down inside of us so that it begins its work on us. We are no better than that doctor who's coming to the word of God for simple information. Information should lead to transformation a transformation of what I desire and what I want to do with my life and how I want it to honor the Lord so that it's not simply my life is made up of filling myself with everything that this world has to offer with a side of Jesus and a side of the word on Sunday morning no God give me your word but more importantly give me your word that's doing surgery in me So that I can be a faithful, obedient citizen in your kingdom. Somebody that you use to bring more people to yourself. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it has to be an altogether different righteousness. It has to be a heart righteousness. A righteousness that not only changes what you say and do, but changes what you want and what you desire. And friends, only the word can do that. Let's bow our heads and let's pray as we close. Our Father, from your own lips, through your Son, we have confirmation of the authority of your word over us as kingdom citizens. what it is to seek you and honor you what it is to love our neighbor and as we're going to see coming up here through the rest of chapter five chapter six and chapter seven Jesus expands on this in this series of you have heard that it was said but I tell you and God you expect obedience and for us to conform our lives to your word and so I pray that we would not just simply put off what we don't like and ignore what we don't like and, and say it's no big deal because it is a big deal. You've called your people to obedience. We're not saved by how many works we do. We're saved by the work of Jesus. But God, now that you've called us through Christ into a relationship with yourself, you have showing us how to live. May we receive it and chew on it. And obey it properly. May I as your messenger. Be precise. Precise. With your word. Not adding to it or taking away from it. Not using it. To say what I want to say. But God may your word be center stage. In everything that we do. And how we live. Lord we love you. And we thank you that you loved us. And today as we close out with a, with a song of celebration, may we also do some reflection and ask the hard questions. Is the word transforming me? Do I view this word and come to it casually? Or do I view it as the authority of my life to read it carefully and precisely, to obey it carefully and precisely so that we can honor you? Thank you, God, for our time together this morning. May you be honored. Amen. We want to thank you for listening to this message and the podcast today. Uh, We hope that you were encouraged and edified by the message. If you have questions, uh, we encourage you to visit us at gloryfellowship.org.